We'll try to preach the Bible, although we need to refer to Dickens from time to time. If you would uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 1, 57 through 80. Now it came to, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, tablet, writing tablet, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let us pray. Father God, we remember that apart from you, we can do nothing And so we pray you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things and see you in this time together. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, some of y'all I've already mentioned in Sunday school that I've had the privilege to lead the, the past few weeks since Advent began, but uh, for the first time in uh, many years, uh, Kathy and I moved to the Soviet Union in 90, and then in 99 we opened a seminary. So for the first time 
Since we opened our seminary in uh, 99, I've asked uh, all of our uh, 30 pastors and leaders to preach through the Gospel of Luke together. So we're doing this from now through Orthodox Easter, which is a month after our Easter, after our Catholic Easter, to confuse you. But uh, so we're excited about it, and I'm secretly calling the Gospel of Luke, it's very secret, the politically incorrect gospel. Okay? Because that's the way the Gospel of Luke is. I think it was designed that way. It offends everyone. The Gospel of Luke is an equal offending operation. Okay? If you're not offended, you're not paying attention. So, if you're a Muslim, it's offensive for giving women too much of a voice. If you're a Muslim, I don't know if there's any Muslims here, but if you're a Muslim, you read the Gospel of Luke and you will be offended. If you're a a patriarchist, if there is such a word, in other words, you worship patriarchy, then you won't like it because some of the patriarchs in Luke, we've already studied, are, don't look too smart, right? They're kind of slow. If you're for tolerance, the gospel of Luke has places in it they are absolutely intolerant. If you're for tolerance, you know, sort of in general. If you're a pietist, the gospel of Luke begins... I mean, the Gospel of Luke promotes rugged public Christianity. If you believe just in you little, your little Jesus in your secret little place in your secret little heart, and that's all Jesus is, then the Gospel of Luke will offend you. If you are for having as few of babies as possible, this Gospel begins with two very inconvenient births. If you believe the poor are only poor because of themselves, then this gospel hits you right between the eyes. Go to Luke 16 and read about Lazarus and the rich man. If you're a nationalist, this gospel calls you an idolater. But, and this is for our uh, Pentecostal brothers that I teach in our seminary, if you're a pacifist, this gospel tells you to go out and grab a weapon in certain circumstances. Okay. If you believe the Gospels are all about mercy, in general, the Gospels, then uh, the Gospels will offend you because hell and Hades are mentioned more in the Gospels than they are in the Old Testament, in the epistles put together, where the word hell and Hades is almost not found. If we and I are paying attention, as I said, you will be offended by the Gospel of Luke. So... Be prepared to be offended. Okay? Are you prepared? Yes. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> and the pointy end of this offense comes to us in the birth and life of John the Baptist. What I want to ask today is why does God give so much print to John in his birth? How many verses are in this first chapter? Anybody notice? 80 verses. It's got to be one of the, except for Psalm 119, it has to be one of the longest chapters in the whole Bible, right? And much of it is covering the birth of John. And I want to suggest there's four C's today. Four C's. As to why the birth of John the Baptist and all that's covered in Luke 1 is so important. Okay, four C's. The first is compromise. The second is cheer. 
The third C is creation, and the fourth C is comfort. Compromise, cheer, creation, and comfort. Okay, so slide number one. I'm supposed to tell the guys when I want the slides. Slide number one. Is it up? We're waiting for slide number one. There we go. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> there you go. Okay. All right. First of all, this is a painting from 1335, and I just thought it was cool. Okay, why? Because it has all the events of John's birth all in one place. Very convenient. All right? And it also shows us how, uh, how the, the whole, all of Western civilization has been intrigued by the Gospels in general, but the birth of John uh, in particular for century upon century. So here are all the events happening on one, on one uh, iconic-looking picture. And it's happening in a home, okay? So all that we just read about is actually happening in, in their home. To understand why God places the life of John the Baptist so prominently in the Gospels, we have to go back to Luke 1, 16, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, okay? So John is a spiritual Elijah. And what did Elijah do? Does anybody remember? In Russia, we have interaction. In, Ru in America, people faint if you expect to have an answer from the crowd. Uh, but in the Gospels, when there's sermons going on, there's usually some sort of interaction. Anybody remember what Elijah? Okay. He, he confronted the false prophets, didn't he? Very good. Some of you all have read your Bible. 1 Kings 8, 21, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people then very bravely did not answer a word. <laughs> That's what it says. Elijah's role was to reveal to the people of God that they were compromised. They apparently wanted to worship Jehovah and Baal at the same time. And Elijah was sent by God to expose their compromise. And this is where we get this great meme, uh, slide number two. Let's see if it comes up. There we go. Happy Advent, you brood of vipers. You got to love that. I found that last week. So that's chapter three in Luke, brood of vipers. Who did John call the brood of vipers? Huh? No, 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 wrong. Sorry. <laughs> he called everybody coming to him a brood of vipers. Everybody was a brood of vipers. <laughs> and that, that's, how to, that's Dale Carnegie, right? How to win friends, friends and influence people. <laughs> Happy Advent, you brood of vipers. <laughs> so, if you... We just read, where was John until his appearance? And then he was in and out of the same place. Well, it was the wilderness. What does the wilderness represent? We did, went over this in Sunday school today. The wilderness represents Israel coming out of Egypt. And they went into the wilderness. So if God is only uh, giving them the, the baptism of forgiveness of sins in the wilderness, that's very significant through John. It means that symbolically the hierarchy of all of Israel, the king and the priests, were now what? 
They were Egypt. They were Pharaoh. In fact, Herod is a, a new Pharaoh. He kills, he kills the babies two years old and under. That's exactly what Pharaoh did when Moses was born, right? He was killing all the Hebrew children. So we have the official public people of God, at least the hierarchy, the king and the priests, were officially now Egypt. So it was a very dark time. And uh, this leads us to uh, a profound description that you wouldn't think I would use. But I had my granddaughter Nancy with me. She spent the night with us uh, a couple nights ago. And we watched the classic and I need to read it. And this is, when, it, when, when John says, you brood of vipers, this is a modern rendition of what John meant. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana and a greasy black peel. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. <laughs> That's pretty close. Brood of vipers, your heart's an empty hole. Not too bad. Nancy's just in the other room. I wish she was here now. <laughs> but maybe she can see the tape, right? <laughs> now, there's another classic. You see, our family, we, we only are into high culture. We're sort of a cultural elite. <laughs> and uh, the other one, of course, is the uh, Muppets Christmas Carol so another way of you brood of vipers of, of, of understanding what, what God is getting at through John is when the cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone, but there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. It paints you with indifference like a late lady paints with rouge, and the worst of the worst and the most hated and cursed is the one that we call Scrooge. See, we don't think of ourselves as Scrooge, do we? Never, we're never Scrooge. I'm not Scrooge. You're not Scrooge. And uh, we're not the Grinch. You're not the Grinch. I'm not the Grinch. But that's not what John the Baptist came to say. He came to say that you and I are the Grinch and you and I are Scrooge. Unkind is any, and the wrath of many is, the Ebe- is this. This is Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug. There goes Mr. Grimm. And they gave a prize for, if they gave a prize for being mean, the winner would be him. Oh, Scroogey loves his money because he thinks it gives him power. If he became a flavor, you can bet it would be sour. So you came to church today to hear that. Sour. See? Sour. God called everyone uh, through the prophet John essentially a Scrooge and a Grinch. See, we don't think like that. <laughs> so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you uh, through what he said and kind of contrast it because the, uh, God is really getting at this. The message of John was a very offensive... Oops, <laughs> somebody put a pencil up there. A very offensive message and a very challenging message. And some of it we love to hear, and some of it is very challenging for us today. Because he says, starting in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is Zechariah talking about his son, his son's birth. For he has visited and redeemed his people. 
And, you know, we're Protestants. We love to say, yes, God has already redeemed us so we can have assurance of salvation. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Yes, a horn of salvation. Gabriel, blow that horn, right? <laughs> we believe all this. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. Yes, we love to, uh, we should love to, to sing the imprecatory psalms against our enemies. They're for real, and we have real enemies. To show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. Yes, God loves our babies. We baptize our babies because God loves our babies. We believe in the covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Perfect love casts out fear. We love all this. And then Zechariah crosses the line in this prophecy because this is not the popular evangelical gospel of today. That we, being delivered from their hand of our enemies, might what? Might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Uh-oh. You mean God is requiring or expecting holiness and righteousness from us? <laughs> In evangelical churches today, do you think that the holiness of God is preached? I haven't heard it much. I don't know. I don't think so. You see, Advent historically has been a time of repentance and a time of acknowledging the holiness of God. The holiness, this holiness, Zechariah, has the bad taste to claim is to become part of us. You see, about 150 years ago, we began to believe in the therapeutic gospel. You know what that means? That means that we have to feel better about ourselves no matter what. So the reason you go to church is to feel better about yourself. It doesn't matter if you're becoming holy or not. It doesn't matter if you believe in the holiness of God or not. The therapeutic gospel is you are to feel better about yourself. I am to feel better about myself regardless if I know anything about God or not. My wife said not to yell. I'm not yelling. I have a very powerful microphone. <laughs> I don't ever yell. I haven't ever yelled, you know, maybe in my life only one time, you know. So, <laughs> only one time. This word holiness is actually a rare word. The only other time in Scripture it's used is Ephesians 4.22 through 24. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, hasiatis. It's not hagias, which is holiness, which is used throughout the Bible. It's hasiatis, which another, trans, uh, another way of translating it is uprightness. Technically, when Zechariah called the covenant holy, he used the regular word for holy, holiness, or holy, hagias, used 229 times in the New Testament. Zechariah calls us to holiness through his son's ministry, which is also translated as uprightness, which is a proper response to God's holiness. You see, what part of the Bible is holy? Let me ask, what part of the Bible is holy? 
Yeah, and what does holy mean? It means morally perfect. So is the book of Genesis morally perfect? <laughs> it is because it's his word. Very good. You all are interacting well. Very good. How about Exodus? How about Deuteronomy? I mean, there's, there's death penalties. God sometimes wipes people out because of their sin. Is God holy when he does that? I see there are some people that have read the Bible and actually submitted to what it says here. Yes. See, the whole thing is holy. And, uh, you know, you and I have a, a brother in another denomination. The denomination is falling apart. Many denominations have fallen apart. Why? Because they want a therapeutic gospel. They want a Bible and a God that conforms to their image. I want God to be this way. You can go on YouTube and hear it. My God, blah, blah, blah. My God this, my God that. And so the prophecy of Zechariah calls us to respond properly to God's moral perfection. God is morally perfect. But then it goes on. There's kind of a, uh, a holiness that leads to even a greater holiness. Because in Luke one thirty-five, we read, And the angel said to her, the holy Hagias ghost, so even the, go- even the spirit, the ghost of God, the spirit of God is holy. The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And in the King James Version, somebody read today the King James Version. In the King James Version, it says, therefore also that holy thing, Hagias, which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. Even Jesus is called that holy thing. Jesus is that holy thing. See, we think of him as merciful, yes, yes, but he's that holy thing as well. He is morally perfect in every way. So, the Westminster Confession, chapter 2, paragraph 2, reads about God in general in the whole Scripture... He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. John the Baptist represents God's moral perfection and holy anger against all of his enemies and those that will not repent. Romans 3.20 reads that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When the law is not preached, what happens? When the law is not preached, what happens? We don't know sin. See, we think we know right and wrong, right? You know, we're Americans. Hey, you know, we know right and wrong. Just think what's going on on our college campuses today. I mean, it's amazing. You think they know right and wrong? No, why? But they don't know the law of God. If you don't know the law of God, you don't know right and wrong. You and I don't know right and wrong. So the law quit being preached probably about 150 years ago, the holiness of God and the, the, perfection, the moral perfection of God. We read in Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. If we are still arguing with God about what he thinks is right and wrong, then we still haven't repented. John called 
the people into the wilderness, which we'll pre- I will preach on in two weeks, uh, to, there was, he was preaching a baptism of repentance. Interesting phrase. Not repent and then be baptized, but a baptism of repentance. You know what this re- really appears to me to be? God is rebooting the people of God. You had to, to, to become a part of the visible, true people of God when John was around. You had to go out in the wilderness and get baptized. <laughs> you know, you're going to take a trip. <laughs> if you can't sit around, you're going to go out there, be baptized. Now, not every, you know, the Pharisees wouldn't do it. So, It is time for the Western church to bring the birth and ministry of John the Baptist out of the wilderness and back into the church. God is saying to us today, Happy Advent, you brood of vipers. <laughs> only, you only hear it here at Redeemer. <laughs> okay, we still have that up? We still do? Wow. Okay, y'all are getting the picture here, aren't you? Now, this is where it's a great paradox because uh, God's people are portrayed as completely compromised and God is raising up a prophet to preach repentance And at the same time, what's going on? The gospel of Luke is an amazing paradox because the word joy, to rejoice, chairo, chairo, can you say that? Chairo, chairo. (laughs) Some of y'all are not very bilingual or trilingual. It's 12 times, much more than any of all the other gospels, joy. You see? And I made joy cheer because it begins with a C. So I'm very sophisticated in my outlining. Instead of saying joy, I'm saying cheer. The the, the Advent story and the Christmas story is full of cheer. We already read some of it today. Luke 1.14, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. 144, behold, the sound of your greeting came to my ears. The baby in the womb leaped for joy. The angel of the Lord came to them in 2.10. Fear not, behold, I bring you great news of great joy that will be for all people. It is not in vain today that we lit the candle of joy because Advent is overflowing with joy. But it is a joy that is different than the joy we think. See, we think and imagine a free-floating joy, don't we? I was raised that way. Christmas brings joy, why and how? Just because you've got lights, you've got great music, and I'm totally into all of that. You know, we have lights all over our house, inside, outside. Our kids growing up in Russia, they got a string of lights to put up in the room however they wanted to. It looked like a spider web. You know, lights everywhere. And so the joy, <laughs> the joy is, there is a free-floating joy in Christmas that everyone tries to experience. But the interesting thing, do you think that Zechariah and Elizabeth... And Mary knew at the birth of their children that they were going to have very difficult lives. Do you think they knew that somehow? Well, we find out for sure that Mary found out, right? We know for sure that she found out because Simeon was in the, in the temple and said, a, a sword is going to pierce your heart, your soul as well. So I think, I think Zechariah knew that his son was going to call the nation to repentance, and he was going to do something like tell Herod that adultery is a crime in God's eyes and that he was going to pay the penalty for confronting the king and had his head cut off. I think he knew that he was joyful anyway. 
Because he was joyful in that holy thing. See, Jesus is holy. So their joy was in the holiness of God. It wasn't sidestepping the holiness of God. You understand? Those are two different joys. Rejoicing that God is calling us to be a holy people, that God is giving us the opportunity to repent, that's a different joy. And that's the joy of Christmas. That's the joy of Advent. It's not a joy that says, you know, I, I, I don't really care what I, how I live. I don't care what's going on in the world. I'm just happy. That's called mindlessness. Okay? So, and sometimes we all need a little bit of mindlessness. That's true, too. <laughs> that's different. Okay. And then tying into that is the third C, creation. And you can show uh, slide number three here. There you go. This is the only picture I could find of John's birth that, that showed the women being somewhat uh, not sad or not sort of neutral. They actually look like something okay is going on. And this is actually a woman uh, artist, one of the few classic wo- women artists from the 17th century, from the 1600s in Italy, who did this picture. So what I'm getting at here is when we run into the gospel and into the How the Grinch Stole Christmas, there were two, there were two uh, heroes uh, with Nancy the other night. Who is, does anybody remember the, the hero in uh, The Grinch? Not the hero. Maybe the heroine, the hero, heroine. Her name is Cindy Lou. And Cindy Lou catches the Grinch. Cindy Lou Who. Yes. Very good. Somebody, I have seen another, another uh, cultural elitist with me. It's a 25-minute cartoon, in case you're wondering, on, on YouTube. And so it is amazing to see the Grinch's response when he sees Cindy Lou. She comes out and says, if I can say it right, Santa Claus, <laughs> Santa Claus, why are you stealing all the decorations? And the Grinch has this horrible look on his face, right? And he, then he d- dreams up a, a lie. But he's at first uh, really terrified of Cindy Lou Who. All right? And then you have who, who, who did God, in, in, in Dickens' God's mind, who broke uh, Scrooge's heart? Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim, right? Tiny Tim. So... In both of these classics, you have a child being the moral weapon. And at Advent, you have the birth of two babies as God's moral weapon. It's so interesting, and it's a mystery. So you have these godly you have two sets of godly parents raising up babies. By the time both of them come along, nobody knows anything about the Christmas events in general. They don't know. They just, all of a sudden, there's this guy in the wilderness calling everybody to repent. And then, then of course, they say, uh, in, I think, Luke chapter 4, you know, Joseph is this guy's father, and he was a carpenter. You know, what's going on? He's the son of Joseph. I think Joseph had already passed away, but he's the son of a carpenter. What's going on? They don't know anything about it. But God's secret weapon was these two babies. And so my, uh, what, what, challenges me is here is a mm, 50 to 70-year-old man who's so happy about the fact that he's having a son, a baby. If you were 50 to 70, 
and you had your first child, would you be happy? I mean, the guy's thrilled out of his mind, you know. He's prophesying. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And same thing with Mary, of course. She was probably 14 to 15 years old, maybe 13. And she says, let it be done to me according to your word. And there was great joy in both of them. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, we like to freeload and say, oh, yeah, we like the blessing of John and Jesus, but do we like the attitude that stands behind the blessing? And so uh, one of the few PCA ministers that writes on this is Kevin DeYoung, who has nine children, by the way. And he wrote a wonderful article that I will give to the church during this next week in a magazine called First Things. Bear with me with a long quote. The most significant thing happening in the world may very well be a thing that is not happening. Men and women are not having children. The biblical logic has been reversed. The barren womb has said enough. In other words, people are saying it's good to be barren. The paradigmatic affliction of the Old Testament is now the desire of nations. If Rachel wanted children more than life itself, Genesis 30 verse 1, our generation seems to have concluded that nothing gets in the way of life more than children. Nothing gets in the way of life more than children. And I would say it's in the church as well. The new wrinkle in our day is a perceived threat of climate catastrophe. I recently read remarks from an elite liberal journalist to the effect that the number one question people ask him after speeches and at dinners is whether they should have kids at all, knowing that the kids will contribute to the climate crisis. They have very big uh, carbon footprints, those little, little babies, you know, big carbon footprints. Quite apart from the intellectual, uh, the, debate, the intellectual debates, we might have about the science or solution of climate change. The intellectual assumption behind the questions are profoundly anti-human. The Bible encourages us to see the beauty of God's creation. And the Bible is not indifferent to the frogs and dogs and fireflies. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, Psalm 150, verse 6. But the Bible's narrative arc is not geocentric as if the redemptive story were mainly about earth or biocentric, as if it were mainly about plants and animals. The Bible's story is anthropocentric. Now, I went to Texas A&M, so I already knew that word. (laughs) Anthropocentric is man-centered. Okay? I don't mean in the humanistic sense, but the Bible is all about people. (laughs) Okay? God, and this is a continuation of the, of the quote by, uh, by Kevin DeYoung. God sent his son to save those made in his image. What's more, as those made in his image, we are not an alien species on the planet, malignant tumors that only devour and destroy. We are sub-creators. We are meant to tend the garden. We can solve problems and make the world more inhabitable. If the climate crisis is as dire as we are told, lasting solutions will come from the efforts of our children, not their elimination. You see, if you pay attention to the news, you're going to become anti-human. 
We are a growth. We are a cancer on the earth. (laughs) If we really want to celebrate the birth of Christ, therefore, we have to celebrate the creation ordinance that brought that birth about, which is to be fruitful and fill the earth with little babies like little baby John and little baby Jesus. What's wrong with the earth today? There's not enough babies. You think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding. (laughs) I read the Bible, folks. I'm sorry. If you're going to argue to me that we all need to have fewer kids because the earth is going to burn up, uh, I'm going to disagree with you and might even make fun of you in a very loud way. I last last noticed, the the last I noticed, God has not changed the creation ordinance. As we are to rest on the Sabbath because God rested, so we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth until God says stop. When will he probably say stop? When he comes again. (laughs) Okay? So don't pay attention to the silly things you see and hear around you. And so if God came today and told one of our teenage daughter that's engaged to have a baby the way he told Mary, and if he told, and I, I want to brag on my wife, I think if, my, if God told my wife to have a baby today, she would do it happily. She's frowning. No, she's not frowning. She's embarrassed. Well, because we like kids. That's how come we have six kids and 17 grandkids, and five of them were here today. You know why I like kids? Because I read Psalm 127 when I was a teenager. What does Psalm 127 say? Lo, children are heritage of the Lord, the fruit of the womb of reward. Like arrows in the hands uh, of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Are are children a, a reward or are they a burden? Are children a reward or are they a carbon footprint? Are children a blessing or are they a curse? Well, if we don't raise them right, you know, (laughs) it can be kind of mixed. But anyway, so the last one, so Psalm 127, if we don't rejoice in Psalm 127, we really are hypocritical about rejoicing in Christmas and Advent and the birth of John the Baptist, okay? We have to go whole hog. We We can't compromise. That's what John came to do. John came to keep us from compromising. And finally, comfort. Another dominant word in Advent and Christmas in Luke is the word peace. We find it in Luke 179, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Luke 214, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Luke 229, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. The word in Greek is irene, but in, in uh, Hebrew it's shalom. Shalom. And so to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Shalom. Shalom. According to Jordan Peterson, the purpose of life is to find a mode of being so meaningful that the fact of life's suffering itself is no longer relevant. That's peace. That's shalom. Because you see, John the Baptist did not have a, humanly speaking, peaceful life. Jesus did not, humanly speaking, have a peaceful life. But did they have shalom? Was Jesus the prince of shalom? 
It's meaning. Jordan Peterson is popular with young men because he dares to tell them that meaning, that is shalom, true peace, comes from responsibility, not avoidance of responsibility. You notice this is not an abstract, Buddhistic, you know, you see the bumper sticker, visualize world peace. It's not what Zechariah said. This is a peace that our actual feet walk in. It's, it's, a, it's a peace that's on the earth that we work out in real life. Peterson's message is, you will have shalom, young men, if you learn to support yourself, get married, support a family, and I will add a large family, Support, you know, I'm a little biased. Support a large family with many children, and, and then, Peterson says, fight against what, what he calls malevolence in the world. This is what Zechariah is saying that God is doing through John and Jesus. But the whole world is their family. They took on responsibility for the whole world. They modeled the shalom of God and led us into the world. The meaning of the universe is to experience shalom through following Christ and taking dominion in this messy, dangerous, but wonderful world. You believe that? To lead our feet into the way of peace. You see, Cindy Lou was used by whoever wrote the story to change the Grinch's heart, Dr. Seuss. There you go. Cindy Lou changed Grinch's heart. Tiny Tim changed Scrooge's heart. The little baby Jesus and the little baby John are to change our hearts. And so the song goes, Comfort, comfort you, my people. Speak ye peace, thus saith our God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning neath the sorrow's load. Speak ye to Jerusalem of the peace that waits for them. Tell her that her sins I cover, and her warfare now is over. That's peace with God. That's what Jesus came to give us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the season of Advent. We praise you for the birth of John the Baptist. Lord, we are amazed at your work and the mystery of it all and the power of it all. God, help us to bring the ministry of John, the life of John, into our lives as we should. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.